Thank you for listening to City Church Podcast. We hope you find this message helpful. And at the same time, it is important to us that you know podcasts should not be a substitute for the flesh and blood people of the church. Church is more than sermons. If you aren't a part of a local church, we would love to help you find one in your area. Please don't hesitate to email us at sermons at borocitychurch.com. That's sermons at borocitychurch.com. We would be happy to help. Thank you for listening. Well, today I will be continuing in our series on in Romans. We're going to be in Romans 6 today. But first, I want to give you the plot of a movie that likely many of you have seen by this point. It's over 20 years old. Um, it's called The Born Identity. Um, ooh, somebody likes it. Um, so... Uh, if you've not seen this movie, um, sorry to spoil it for you a little bit, but um, it's been out for two decades, so you've had your chance. <clears throat> By the way, I'm also not saying that this is necessarily a family movie night recommendation, so parents, use good judgment here before you pop this on for the whole family. Um, but the movie and the book, actually, that it's based off of, it came out in the early 80s, tell the story of Jason Bourne. Is that really his name? We don't really know. <laughs> um, that's part of the intrigue of the movie. Um, but at the beginning of the very first movie, you see this scene where there are these fishermen out in the Mediterranean, and they come across a body floating in the sea. They, someone spots this body out there. They pull it in, thinking this person is dead. But they find out he's not dead. He was mostly dead. Um, but they nurse him back to health. And later he, you know, after a little bit of time, we don't know how long this is, but he wakes up very aggressively, doesn't have any clue where he's at, who he is. He has no idea what his name is, what his job is, and why in the world he's on this Italian fishing boat out in the Mediterranean. This man has no idea why he was floating nearly dead in the, in the Mediterranean. And it's not long before he starts to discover a lot of clues to who he really is. The bullet wounds that are in his back. The capsule that's containing a Swiss bank account number that's removed from his hip. He goes to that bank to find a safe deposit box filled with cash, a gun, and numerous passports, all with different names on them but the same face, his face. Those are external red flags for sure. Something's going on here. But there's also the internal ones as well. How is it that he can speak multiple languages with no memory of ever being trained to do that? How is it that he can instinctively walk into a room and tell that the guy sitting at the counter weighs a certain amount of weight and can handle himself? Why is it that he instinctively can do close hand-to-hand combat really, really well, instinctively, reflexively. The reality is, is that he has an identity that although he has no memory of it, he can't outrun it. And thus begins the whole series of movies, multiple movies that explore this whole relationship of this man who had no idea who he was, finding out who he really is and trying to do something about it. Now, I highly doubt that many or probably any of you just playing off statistics have ever experienced the kind of psychogenic amnesia that Jason Bourne did. 
And I really hope that none of you are trained clandestine government assassins. <laughs> but in the movie, I do think there are two things that resonate beyond just the kind of like yay raw, you know, splashy suspense spy thriller kind of movie that it is. And here's what I think those two things are. The things that Jason struggles with. Who am I really? What is my true identity? And where am I headed? What is my purpose? What am I supposed to do? And how am I supposed to live it out? Who am I? And what am I supposed to do? And Romans 6 brings us into a crucial passage for us today to not only understand our true identity in Christ, but also gives us the resources on how to live it out. It'll help us deal with our past, but also refocus us on how to live out our new identity in the future. So if you've got a Bible, you can go to Romans chapter 6. We're going to be there. If you don't have a Bible, we have those for free out in the lobby. You can go by the welcome desk and pick one of those up, and that, was, that is our gift to you. We hope that you'll take it and read it, not just today, but you'll continue to do that. Hey, maybe get into a D group and read it with other people. Look at that. I brought it all the way back already. So we're going to start in Romans 6, verse 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter for context. So here we go. Romans 6, starting in verse 1. Paul says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will, no, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him for the death he died. He died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then should we sin because we're not under the law? But under grace, absolutely not. Don't you know if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obey from the heart that pattern of teaching to which 
you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then? from the things you are now ashamed of. The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you've been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, that's where we're at today. And there's two big ideas, two uh, big analogies that Paul uses to kind of anchor us into understanding those things. And that's what I hope to unpack throughout this, this message this morning. But to be sure, there's a lot of things that Paul says in this chapter. There is so much there that I'm not going to be able to get into. So one, I want you to know that I recognize that. Also, there's a lot of application points that I could probably make and I probably won't. I'll try to make some, but uh, there will be others that, uh, that you can make. There are other conclusions and things to draw out for sure. We are taking a flyover view of this today, and I want to kind of give you the main points, the main ideas. So like I said, Paul gives us two analogies here, and the way that he uses them are a little bit surprising to us, perhaps, maybe not to you, but they, they are to me. Because of our typical association with what those analogies are. Um, One of them, the first one, which we'll get into in just a second, is one that we typically don't think as seriously and somberly about. And that kind of becomes a big part of his point uh, to that. The other one, the other analogy he uses, is one that our modern ears, especially as Americans, are repulsed by and we want to separate ourselves from. So hopefully we'll be surprised by the things that he says, but also able to understand the viewpoint that he's making it through. So this ought to be fun. We're going to get into it. Here's point number one. We cannot excuse or escape our sin, but we can embrace our union with Christ to fight it. We can't excuse or escape our sin, but we can embrace our union with Christ to fight it. Paul talks a lot about sin throughout this chapter. To be fair, he's talked a lot about sin all the way from chapter one. I mean, he's primarily been saying like, this is a major problem and we need to address it. Sin is not primarily something that's done to us. Paul's point is that sin is something primarily that we do that is an offense to a holy and righteous God. And because of that, We need to understand the seriousness, the scope of that. So he talks a lot about sin in this chapter. We can attempt to suppress it like he talks about in chapter 1, but you can't. It continues to bubble up. Your throat's an open grave. Your best works are a filthy rag. Like All of these things are points that Paul has made throughout the chapters leading up till now. We're predisposed to be sinners but we're also fully participating in it as well. 
All of these things bring us to where we're at. And then this chapter, I would say that Paul's main point is found in verse 12, where he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its desires. As I've looked at this, I think all the verses leading up to that kind of make this point. All the verses on the other side end up looking back to this. This is Paul's whole point about the two analogies he gives us is to kind of move us to focus in on this middle part of this passage. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Remember, he talks a lot about sin. All right? And he gives us this command. All right? So simple, right? Easy. Just don't let sin reign in your body. There you go. Just take that. Boom. See you next week. You know, let us know how it's going. Obviously, it's a little more complicated than that. And that's why he unpacks it quite a bit more. All people sin. Even the most well-disciplined Christian is still going to sin. We all know that. No one's denying that. And on one hand, there's no escape from sinning. But does that mean that we can just excuse our sin because we've received an abundance of grace? And Paul immediately answers that rhetorical question at the start of the chapter with absolutely not. So to explain why, he starts explaining that in terms of an analogy, which is baptism. So for Paul's audience, baptism, when they would hear that word, it's not something they would necessarily immediately or only associate with the religious act of being baptized. He was talking to Christians. They had a category for, you know, you go down in water, you come back up. That is signifying something that Jesus commanded a believer in Christ to do. This had significance. They, they understood that. But what I'm saying is, if you read the word baptism in the news, you weren't talking about someone getting dunked in a horse trough and brought up in some water in a church service. The word was a lot more serious than that in that culture. That word means to immerse, which is why when we perform a baptism, we immerse people. You go submerged under the water. But when people would hear the word baptize, the word we translate as baptize, they would think of something violent, something tragic that had happened. A ship that had sunk all the way to the floor of the sea. They would think of a person or people that had drowned. First century culture primarily associated the word baptism with tragedy, with death. We don't typically think of it that way. Because as Paul talks about in this passage, we understand the other side of the coin. But let's not miss the seriousness, the somberness of what he's bringing up here. To fight sin, we have to realize that we have been baptized with Christ. So Paul talks a lot about death in this passage too. Sin leads to death. There's no denying that. And Paul doesn't deny it here. I'll just give you some verses where he says this. Romans 6.2, he says, we died to sin. Verse 3, all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried with him by baptism into death. Verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8, now if we died, dot, 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 he continues, 
Those are just some of the passages. There's more. There are 14 different references, either directly or indirectly, to death in this passage. So the association between baptism and death go together. And let's not remove those things. Why? Because we have been baptized in Christ and united with him in the likeness of his death. So says verse 5 in this chapter. On one hand, it reminds us of the utter seriousness of our sin. It required death. Sin requires our death. Going back to Genesis chapter 3, this is the curse that has been put on us. But we also participate in it. And Jesus has taken that curse on himself. And through his death, we experience a freedom because we have been baptized into his death. We've been united with him through it. Jesus died on your behalf to pay for your sin. It's not because you were a victim. It is not because you are broken. It is not because you're sick. It's not because you're just less than perfect. It's because you are a sinner and deserving of death because of your sin, not somebody else's sin that's done to you. They have to answer for that. You and I have to answer for our sin. And there's a seriousness to that. Jesus died because we were the sinful rebels against the, the God of the universe. We've committed cosmic treason. But... Through Christ's death, our sin and death are drowned. It's dead. It's baptized. Our sin, our death is dead. And we are baptized into the death of Jesus. And that act of baptism is super important. So hear me say all the things that I'm saying. I'm not, in no way am I diminishing the act of baptism Paul is pointing to the act of baptism as a marker for people to understand this, but he's also using the fuller meaning of it. Look, if you've placed your faith in Christ and you've never been publicly baptized, that is a significant step that you need to take. It's an opportunity for you to express what you believe about Jesus to others, and that's important. But the act itself is important of getting baptized because of what it points back to. It points back to Jesus' death and his resurrection. Jesus said on the cross, just before he died, it is finished. And so, in being united with Christ in his death, his work is finished to remove the power of sin over our life, the reign of it over our lives. And since you died with Christ, you are now dead to sin. It no longer has the authority over you to blind you of true reality. Now, you probably see the brokenness and experience it even more. As you still are, you know you're not perfect and you still sin. But the power is gone if you have faith in Christ. Its reign is no more. You are under the reign of a different kingdom. Now there is another side to the baptism coin. And baptism also represents resurrection and life. 
Like I said in verse 5 earlier, I'll read it again. If you have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we certainly also will be in the likeness of his resurrection. We've been united in his death. We also are united with his life, his resurrection. This is the kind of resurrection and life that Jason Bourne was really after. I mean, he experienced a baptism of sorts. And when he came up to realize what reality really was, he spent the rest of his life trying to justify himself so that he could get a new life, to remove himself from his old life. But through Christ, guys, we get that life. We don't have to fight for it. It's, we can receive it. It's already been given to us. And it's all about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus work hand in hand. Verse 4, you can walk in newness of life. Verse 5, we're in the likeness of Christ's resurrection. We're united to that. Verse 8, we believe that we will also live with him, with Christ. In verse 11, as we consider ourselves in all of this, we can know that we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. As Christians, we are dead to sin, but we are alive because Jesus is alive. We are born into a kingdom that's not under the reign of sin and death, but under the reign of Jesus. And the verbiage throughout this passage is all past tense. It's finished. It's done. It's over. It's guaranteed. It's not like it happened and it's going to keep happening. It happened. Period. That's it. Jesus died, you died. Reign of sin, over. It's past tense. There's no more fighting against that old identity in the way that we were before. It, we're free. You're completely free. Our old self is totally dead in Christ's death. And our new self is totally alive in Christ's life. So if this is true, getting back to Paul's questions that he raises at the beginning and the middle, if we, if we believe that this is true, then trying to lowball and just carry out the minimum code requirement to still remain a Christian makes absolutely no sense. Why would you do that? Clearly, you don't know what you've received if that's how you act. We, when we embrace the identity of Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, we know what that meant for us and what that will mean for us going forward. We shouldn't waste the grace of God on continuing to live out our old identity. And that's not to say that there aren't habits and entrenched ways of thinking, acting, doing, and being that you don't have to work through, okay? There is kind of a Jason Bourne kind of thing that still goes on within the life of us as a Christian. There are reflexes that, you know, like just happen, all right? That's part of the, the remnants of that old reign of sin and death still at work and at war within us. But we're free from that. We don't have to answer to it anymore. We don't have to justify ourselves anymore. We have been justified. We've received the grace of God completely. So instead, we learn that we should fight our sin 
by embracing the, un the united identity with Christ. So the question is, is how do we do that? In verse 11, Paul says, So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul says that we are to consider. Now that sounds like a pretty harmless, like passive word. But what that word means is that we are to keep mental records for the sake of some future action. It's not just like, oh yeah, Jesus died for me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get that. So now I'm going to go figure it out. This means like we never stop thinking about that. Like the gospel is not just some entry point that we look back on that like, yeah, I prayed a prayer, I got baptized, and now, you know, that's all behind me. You know, I'm doing this other thing now. We never stop forgetting it. We need to continue to consider and remember over and over again what Christ died for me for and what he has brought me alive to be. We've been united with him. Consider this. It means then that we can put forth, because we consider, the, the mental, spiritual, physical, emotional effort to remember all of these truths. And it does require effort. The gospel is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning from God. And we fight by considering what Christ has done for us. When confronted with living out our old identity, we need to remember, we need to consider again that we're dead to sin. We're alive to God. I don't have to justify myself any longer. I don't have to react. That, that power is broken over my, my life. I don't have to seek pleasure outside of the pleasures of God. He is enough. I need to consider that. I need to take those mental records over and over and over and do an account and then base my actions on that. That's what it means to embrace our identity in Christ. And the second point, this comes with a little bit of a warning. Everyone is a slave to something or someone. Everyone's a slave to something or someone. You know, I said there was two analogies. You probably knew that this was going to be the other one. But Paul uses the analogy of slavery in the latter part of this chapter. And if you're taken back by that, and this last point, then just hang with me for a second. The second question raised in this passage, again, has to do with this kind of entitlement mentality of what we've received from Jesus and, and how we use God's grace. In verse 15, Paul asked the rhetorical question, what then, should we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And he answers it, absolutely not. Some people think that Paul might have been addressing Jewish Christians who were concerned about talking so much about grace and not talking enough about the law, the Old Testament law. Basically, if we take the rules away, won't everybody just start breaking them? Now, I don't know if you've ever, let's say, you know, driven on the interstate, <laughs> but, you know, there are these, like, rectangular signs, you know? Like, if you were to actually go up to them, they're actually pretty big, you know what I mean? They're like, 
this wide, this tall. They say two words at the top of it. Do you know what those words are? Speed limit. Ha! Those things are posted everywhere. Now there's digital ones going from here to Nashville. It changes, you know, the speed limit changes. So they can let you know you need to slow down, right? If we take those away, you think it's going to change much out there on 24? <laughs> One, mostly it's a parking lot most of the time. So whatever that speed limit says, ain't nobody going that. But also, the signs aren't keeping anybody from doing anything beyond that anyway, right? It's just pointing out that what you are doing is wrong and is dangerous. So it is with this kind of argument. It is a legitimate concern. If, the, if all laws, we stop talking about them all the time, of course that would be a little bit problematic. But Paul has already stated that the larger law at work in the human heart is one that always points us back to the truth, back to the standard of God. Whether it's written down and expressed and voiced, eventually our souls recognize there's a greater law at work. It's why we can't suppress the truth. And his point is that if you've truly accepted Christ by faith, then intentionally sinning to somehow claim more grace from God is just foolish. We're treating Christ's sacrifice with contempt. Instead, Paul raises a bigger argument. He says that we're all obeying something or someone, and that makes each and every one of us a slave. So in verse 16, he says, Don't you know if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey. Slavery existed at the time that Paul was writing. Everybody was aware of it. Now, I can say, and it's important to note, that the form of slavery was not great. There were abuses. It was probably something that society would have been potentially a lot better off had it never existed. Maybe not potentially. That's lowballing. It would have been a lot better if people would have just operated from a very good ethical way towards one another without the use of slavery. But Paul wrote centuries before the transatlantic slave trade happened, one that was based solely on race and demeaning to people as property and things that were less than human. This was not the situation he found himself in, even though it was a broken system. So we hear slavery as Americans, it's awkward, it's offensive, because we've filtered that through the history of our own country. Okay? But let's mentally kind of separate ourselves and see what Paul is saying and try to understand what he's saying. Paul's readers were fully aware that to be a slave meant that you were bound to fill, fulfill whatever commitment you had made in this agreement. Furthermore, slavery was not just something that people were thrown into. People volunteered for it. It was called becoming a bond servant. It's essentially the same thing that you do if you have a mortgage, if you have an apartment lease, if you have any bills at all that are in your name, 
that you are held accountable for, guess what? You're a bond servant. <laughs> now, we don't use that language. We have different language for that. The difference being is that because of debt, because of hard times, because of whatever reasons, people didn't have the resources and capital to make ends meet. And so they would go to someone who did have those and they would place themselves under their service for a set amount of time that it was agreed upon and they would pay off their debt back to this person. Now, again, there were all kinds of dark sides to that, shadows to that. It was not perfect. But everybody knew that this was a thing. Just like you have a relationship to whomever you owe bills to, we, we have that relationship. Everybody that was hearing this knew that there were relationships like this everywhere. Likely many of them were either slaves or they were slave owners. They were bond servant masters. So everybody had a framework. And the framework they would think about is the obligation. They knew that Roman law would kind of back you up. That like the bond servant had to do these things. The master had to do these things. This is how it was supposed to work. Everybody understood that obedience to this contract was the basis of this whole system. And so what Paul is saying here is that obedience is something that is built into us as Christians. This is how we live this out. We are no longer obedient to sin and to death, the things that require Jesus to die on our behalf. We no longer obey that. We obey Christ because he has good. He has paid our penalty. He has given us his righteousness. And the question that we should all beg to ask is, why would you not want to obey someone who did all of that for you? Now, more generally speaking, it's easy to say that whatever controls us, there's an element of obedience to it. It might not be necessarily to a person, but it could be. It could be to a desire that you have, a need that you feel, feel like you needs to be filled in you. Paul expands this idea, doesn't narrow it. He expands it to say that whatever you are seeking control from is the thing that is controlling you. So let me use a quote to kind of bring this out. This person says, whatever controls us is our Lord, lowercase l. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. Think about that. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. This expands the list of oppressive masters in our life because it's not just things and people out there. It's stuff that I'm thinking about and working through in here. It's not just an out there problem. It's a heart problem. It's an understanding problem. And we're all after some sort of power or some variety of acceptance from people. And Paul's point here is not to depress us, but to remind us that we have been lifted out of this oppressive kind of relationship of poverty and slavery. 
We are bond servants to Christ. Christ has transferred you and me into a new kingdom. And there's different economics in this kingdom. He removes from you the penalty of your sin. He's reconciled your account. He's absorbed your debt and completely given you all of His riches. He's set you free from the condemnation of your sin and has given you the hope of flourishing by enter into His way of righteousness. And that involves trusting and obeying Him. Accepting Christ as Savior and Lord does not mean that Jesus becomes your dictator. Rather, it means that God becomes your Father. Jesus is your King, but He's also your brother. And the Holy Spirit is your Counselor. Does any of that sound oppressive to you? The economy of the kingdom of God works differently. In Christ, we are no longer slaves to our grasping for power and acceptance. In Christ, you have received the power of God because it's what raised Christ from the dead. And remember, you've been raised with Christ from the dead. And you've been given acceptance that you could never earn. You could never achieve and you get to be called a child of God. You're accepted. So careful on playing the I'm free to do whatever I want card because of God's grace. If you're not a bondservant of Christ, then you're a slave to everything else. And this brings me to my last point. We should gratefully and wholeheartedly receive Christ by offering ourselves to him. Bringing it back to Jason Bourne one more time. Um, in one of the sequels, I didn't do all my research and watch all the movies <laughs> um, to find out where this was, but I know in one of them, there is this scene where Jason finally figures out like how it all happened. This moment of clarity of how he ended up getting baptized in the sea. He had been sent to assassinate a leader, and he was going to carry that out by secretly boarding the yacht that that leader was on in the middle of the night. He sneaks in. He's on the boat. He knows where the leader is probably going to be. As he's got gun drawn, slowly, quietly walking, ready to carry out his dark mission, and he approaches the man. And just as he's about to pull the trigger, a child looks up at him. A child is resting on this man's chest. And at that mo moment, it sends him for a loop. He looks, he sees the child, the child looks directly at him. Then he looks and he sees the man's wife sitting right there, asleep. Then he looks and he sees the man's son asleep over here. And that moment of seeing this man's daughter and his wife and his son breaks down all that super soldier training that he's had that's kind of brainwashed him to, to be and do all of these things. And he can't carry it out. In that moment, he's able to see himself with a lot more clarity that I'm simply a slave for the government and what I'm doing is wrong. And he can't go through with it. 
he decides at that moment he can't be the monster that he's been trained to be. Now, many of you, if you're a Christian, have had this kind of experience. The day when you stop seeing God as some power-tripping authoritarian force and you start seeing him as a loving father and you are the child on his chest. And you see Jesus, and this wakes you up to a different reality. That you're both sinful, but you're also loved. And you don't have to live this way anymore, the way you've been living. In verse 23, Paul says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you've believed then, what should that produce in you? Well, we learn about that in verse 17. Paul says, but thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. Once you're awakened to this reality that Christ has paid for your sin and he's offering you another way, the proper response is gratitude. It's not entitlement. It's not look what I get to do. It's look what has been done for me. And you consider it, you remember it, you think about it over and over and over. And this becomes something that you obey from your whole heart. You obey it wholeheartedly. And it changes you. There's gratitude. There's there's no loophole finding. There's no trying to find the escape door all the time. Trying to get out of doing things. There's thanksgiving. There's wholehearted obedience to the person who gave you the life that you don't deserve to begin with. So my question today for all of us is do you see the sun today? If you're a Christian, are there any areas of your life right now that you realize that I'm abusing the grace of God in order to just continue doing this, acting like it's fine? I have God's grace you likely know what those things are. Today's your opportunity to repent and to turn back to the God who loves you and doesn't want you to live in that broken way anymore. You don't have to. You've been freed from it. If that's not you, do you see the sun freshly today with more gratitude? Does it motivate you to have greater obedience and love for Christ? Will that motivate you in how you live and how you think? What's your next step? Or maybe you came in here and you've just had your moment of clarity just about three minutes ago. What should you do in response? By faith, will you receive the gift of God of eternal life in Christ Jesus? All you got to do is receive it. You don't earn it. You can't achieve it. And your old life, you'll never be able to separate yourself from without the power of Jesus uniting you to his death and his resurrection. No more running. No more excusing, excuse-making. No, no more escape. Just embrace the gift of God in Christ Jesus completely. That's all you got to do. Will you see the sun today? Will you allow his eyes to pierce through whatever is going on to see your heart 
to be known, to be fully loved? And will you embrace the identity that he's given to you completely? Let's pray. Father, I pray right now that all of us would respond appropriately. Lord, I know that all of us, like I said, when we all know this, all of us are sinners. We all know there are things that we can do and will be repenting of. But Father, for those that have been suppressing the truth of of your grace and what that truly means in their life, there are areas where they need to repent and trust you. Father, I pray that you would meet them with your kindness and that that would change their hearts, their minds, and the way they walk out of here. Father, for each and every person that is considering, should I, can I, will I trust in this Jesus to pay for my sin? I pray that you give them courage in this moment to open their hands up perhaps literally open their hands up to receive the gift, the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Let them walk out of here knowing that they're a child of God with a new identity. There's no more running from the past. There's only running to you. Let it be, Lord. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.